Hello and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we cover how the environment, our society and corporate governance affect and are affected by our economy. I'm Bentley Kaplan, your neighborly host for this episode. On today's show, we're going to start where it's hot. And right now, that is in the northwestern United States and western Canada, where residents, government officials and healthcare workers negotiate a vicious heat wave. As scientists dig into the links between this heat wave and climate change, we'll take a look at an industry under increasing pressure for its role in exacerbating climate change, oil pipelines crisscrossing the North American landscape. And for these pipeline companies, risks from a new and growing investor interest in climate is being interwoven with a much older risk. You see, for decades, communities and indigenous peoples have had to contend with pipelines accidentally spilling oil into their local ecosystems and water supplies. And even though these communities have long protested the presence of pipelines, their plight is starting to gain more attention as activists successfully leverage global interest in climate change. And a record-breaking heat bubble is a timely reminder for investors who may be squinting into the long-term future of pipelines and weighing up not only climate change, but impacts on communities and biodiversity along thousands of miles of pipeline network. And from heat bubbles and pipelines, we'll make a hard turn into the financial world for our second story to take a look into the decision by US-based Ally Bank to scrap overdraft fees for all customers. And as the behemoths of the American banking world, Chase, Citibank, Bank of America and Wells Fargo look set to keep their overdraft fees in place, we'll try to figure out whether there is more to this announcement than just a marketing boost for Ally. Thanks for sticking around. Let's do this. Just as parts of the US and Canada look to be turning the corner and leaving behind the worst of the COVID-19 pandemic, an area of high pressure, or a heat dome, started forming over a northwestern section of North America, which started compounding on itself. That's led to high temperatures. Temperatures so high that they are breaking all-time records, day after day. People have died, businesses and schools have closed, and in temperate regions unprepared for these conditions, governments are providing cooling centers as refuge for residents. And the role of climate change in driving this type of event is complex. But there appears to be consensus that anthropogenic climate change is making these heat waves more frequent, longer and hotter. And for every climate-related disaster that pops on the news, from heat waves in North America to bushfires in Australia or floods in the United Kingdom, pressure is ramping up on asset managers and asset owners to take action, to adapt their investment strategies, to navigate not only policy risks, but to drive change towards low-carbon economies. One set of companies under the microscope of many would be those in the oil and gas industry that have midstream operations. Basically meaning companies that process, store, transport, and market oil and gas. The most iconic of which, even if just for their sheer engineering hubris, would be companies operating gas or oil pipelines. And for those investors fretting over their portfolios, three colleagues of mine at MSCI ESG Research, Chris Cote, Antonius Panaitopoulos, and Kevin Kwok, put together some pretty timely research in their paper, Under Pressure, Climate, Biodiversity, and Community Relations Risks for North America's Major Oil Pipelines. Kind of says it all for you. So, I called up a couple of the authors to try and get their take on whether something like a heat wave can ripple through to an industry that runs thousands of miles of oil and gas-filled pipelines across the US and Canada. Antonius was the first to lay the stage for me. 
So in the North American pipeline segment, we do have independent operators, companies that are focused just on the construction and operation of the pipeline segment. These essentially need to bridge supply and demand between exploration and production where they produce oil and gas, run it through their pipeline by capacity contract, and then deliver that crude oil to refineries, which represent the downstream demand for oil and gas. Now, pipelines that carry crude oil from Western Canada specifically have faced significant opposition because of the oil that they carry. Canadian tar sands have a higher carbon intensity, both to produce, but also to consume. So therefore, some of the recent opposition that we have seen had a preface, if you like, as well on oil sands, on the sense that they are carrying a a higher carbon intensity crude. Okay, so there's a start. Pipelines move oil, but not all oil or gas is equal. Oil that comes from Canada's tar sands needs carbon intensive processes to get it out in the first place and to actually use it to generate energy. And one of the lightning rods for debate about oil from Canadian tar sands was the Keystone XL pipeline, planned by the Canadian company TC Energy. Although part of the pipeline has already been completed, a critical 1,200-mile section was intended to run from Alberta through Montana, South Dakota, and Nebraska. But ultimately, the project was cancelled in early June 2021, following the US president's decision to deny a key permit for the project on a busy first day in office way back on the 20th of January. So that seems like a big deal. There were those that maybe saw this as a clean, swift end to oil pipelines, at least new ones. But things in life are a little more complicated than that. Because another contested project, plans by the Canadian company Enbridge to build a 340-mile section of pipeline across northern Minnesota as part of an extension of its Line 3, has not been opposed by the Biden administration as of the time of recording. So, I asked Antonius what he thought about the lifespan of the oil pipeline business when the regulatory environment looks to be in this type of flux. We do see some ongoing issues, hurdles in the short term for North American pipelines. One as well of the early actions of the of the Biden administration was to, to pause new oil and gas leasing, which could reduce oil production over the long term. At the moment, those leases are based on a long term schedule. Now, if we want to look at it from a wider perspective, in the near term, And based on the current levels, we don't see an impact specifically from carbon taxes, be that either in Canada or in the United States, for impacting the construction or even the the ongoing operation of those pipelines. Okay, so pipelines are on a slow-moving timeline. They work on long-term contracts to transport oil agreed to well in advance, 5, 10, or even 15 years ahead of time. And even though the US and Canada are making more progressive moves on climate change legislation, Antonius doesn't see that carrying forward into short-term impacts like a sudden carbon tax or regulations to terminate ongoing pipeline operations. And at this point, it's tempting to think of pipelines as just a link in a value chain, only subject to what's happening on either end. If energy use starts slowly turning away from fossil fuels and towards renewable energy, they might see a gradual drop in demand from downstream clients, or if upstream producers find it harder to get approval or permits for new exploration projects, then the volume of oil available to transport might start slowing 
albeit gradually. But then, Antonius reminded me that pipelines are not just a conceptual link in the oil and gas value chain, but hulking steel pipelines, channeling millions of barrels of oil every day across thousands of miles. And it's at localized spots across these thousands of miles that our story comes to a head. Pipelines are the safest and most efficient economical uh, way to transport oil, especially in the context of, uh, of North America. However, even the impact of a, a, a single spill can have severe negative impact on the surrounding environment, but also the nearby communities may create adverse reputational and financial risks for the companies involved. The management or the mismanagement of relations with community groups and especially indigenous groups, we have seen from other industries, but increasingly in the pipeline industry as well, that it may lead to the permanent loss of license to operate. As with the Dakota Access Pipeline a few years back and in 2021 with the TC Energy Keystone XL, when these projects gain an international spotlight, some risks may grow to such extent that are impossible to manage. Right, so as Antonis explains, pipelines are really safe and efficient relative to other ways of transporting oil and gas. But one misstep is hugely impactful. A single spill can contaminate surroundings with thousands of barrels of oil. Communities opposed to pipelines aren't just objecting to their presence, you know, running through their land, but to what could happen if or when something goes wrong. And there's nothing particularly new about pipelines accidentally spilling oil. If you search the internet for oil spill events from pipelines, you'll see them peppered across the past several decades. And it was way back in 1991 when the worst spill in US history happened on Enbridge's Line 3, when 1.7 million gallons of crude oil spilled into a wetland and a river near the Grand Rapids in Minnesota. But what is shifting is how localized protests against pipelines are starting to leverage regulatory and investor interest in climate change to draw attention to their causes. With the prime examples being the Dakota Access Pipeline and Keystone XL that Antonius mentioned earlier. And it's difficult to know if investors were already taking an interest in community and indigenous rights and biodiversity impacts without any climate change angle, but there is something about tying these issues together that is rolling attention up onto a national and international stage. To get a sense of how this pressure from current protests might be translating for investors and pipeline companies that usually look out over a 10 or 15 year window, I gave Kevin Kwok, one of Antonius's co-authors on this paper, a quick call. For him, the interesting side of this story is how it could play out for companies and a key source of their funding, fixed income investors. Yeah, so it's it's always been a little bit different for every single part of the energy sector. Um, so traditionally, the midstream sector has really been privy to long-term debt horizons. So because of their business models, they've always had long-term contracts, which are tied to producers for transport and storage, and they have a minimum set volume and pricing. So climate risk and biodiversity and community conflicts now are really testing the future of long-term debt. And most of what uh, investors are doing nowadays are engaging on different levels. Um, you know, even before bonds are launched, um, investors are basically saying that they will not invest in um, certain companies if ESG issues are not um, 
are, are not being are not transparent or being tackled. And this has put a lot more pressure on issuers these days because debt is the cheapest cost of capital for them in order for them to grow. Right. So even for debt investors that can't vote on shareholder proposals and don't have the same right as equity investors, there is still space to lean on pipeline companies, to push them to improve their practices, to do a little better. And for Kevin, one way to understand this is through a comparison between MSCI's ESG rating, which tells the difference between ESG leaders and ESG laggards, and a traditional credit rating, which assesses financial metrics to give you lower risk or investment-grade bonds, or riskier, high-yield bonds. So when we think about investment-grade and high-yield investors, so oftentimes investment-grade, we also think of very strong financial metrics. But contrary to what most um, investors do believe, you know, investment-grade companies can um, struggle to manage their ESG risks. So you know, looking at our analysis, high-yield issuers really only accounted for about 4% of the total outstanding debt in this peer group none of these high yield issuers were ESG laggards. So there were actually a few ESG laggards in the investment grade side. So you know, as I mentioned, stronger financial metrics, but sometimes they're also bigger, more diverse. Some of these large companies like Inbridge, they, they have operations all over North America. So they have Canadian operations and also multiple regions all over the US. So they have to deal with a lot more different um, biodiversity issues, climate issues, as well as community relations issues. And I know. That might have flirted with the wonkier side of the financial universe, but Kevin makes a great point, one that ties this whole story together. Because as pipeline companies already know, and as many investors are quickly learning, there is a complex environmental and social world out there. And dropping thousands of miles of oil pipeline into that world creates risk for companies and their investors. And having a great credit rating doesn't tell you all that much about how well a pipeline is managing social and environmental risks along its massive network, or how likely a company is to suddenly find itself on the wrong end of a protest by local communities or indigenous peoples. Protests like those that surrounded the Dakota Access Pipeline, Keystone XL, and Enbridge's Line 3. Protests that connect with policymakers, and ones that hold up accelerating climate change, like a record-breaking heatwave across the US and Canada, as a reason to be heard. And from the baking northwest, for our next story, we are going to make a hard turn into the welcoming air-conditioned offices of the banking world. In June 2021, Ally Bank, which is the largest digital bank in the US, made an intriguing announcement that it was going to end overdraft fees on all accounts. To get down to the ESG roots of this announcement, I called up one of the newer members of our ESG research team out of New York, Carrie Wong. It's always the heaviest fee among all sorts of bank fees. The original intention is to discourage overdraw. But in the past 20 years, the overdraft fees have actually risen from an average of $21.57 in 1998 to an average of $33.47 in 2020. Okay, so the overdraft fee is kind of like a short-term loan. Banks maybe don't want the hassle of lots of people overdrawing their accounts, so they slap them with this overdraft fee. And I know it seems like a simple enough idea, kind of like how a wine tasting charges a token fee to just stop people showing up for free wine. But away from hypothetical wine tastings, 
In real life, in the hard numbers of COVID-19 and growing inequality, how these overdraft fees are impacting on society is a whole other thing. In 2020, Americans in total paid $12.4 billion in overdraft fees, which is a relatively large number, but it disproportionately hurts low-income and moderate-income people and also Black and Latino families. More than 80% of the overdraft fees are paid by consumers who are living paycheck to paycheck. So overdraft fees in the U.S. are one of the reasons why some people might say it's expensive to be poor. People with less money in their account still need to buy groceries or pay their rent. And when they overdraw their account, it starts making it more expensive for them to bank than someone who might never be at risk of using an overdraft facility in the first place. Which brings us back to Ally Bank and its decision to scrap overdraft fees. Carry through some numbers at me. For Ally, a small bank with no physical branches and low overheads, overdraft fees before they were scrapped brought in $5 million, which equates to 0.07% of total 2020 revenue. Now contrast that with big brother bank JP Morgan that cashed in 1.5 billion in overdraft fees or more than 1% of its total 2020 revenue. And it's because of these numbers that banks are under increasing scrutiny for their overdraft fee policies. In May 2021, Senator Elizabeth Warren criticized the CEOs of JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, Citi, and Bank of America for taking in a collective $4 billion in overdraft fees during the COVID-19 pandemic. And that's despite those banks having their own overdraft fees waived by the Federal Reserve. Which, politics aside, doesn't look great. But I wanted to scratch just a little deeper. Sure, Ally doesn't depend on overdraft fees. And yes, scrapping them might put them under less political pressure and see a nice little PR bump. But it turns out there's a little more to it. So first of all, Ally Bank does market itself as a low-cost banking choices for customers. So the move of eliminating overdraft fees on all its accounts definitely would provide additional growth opportunities in underserved communities. And those also, like, they may able to attract customers from their competitors. And last but not least, it would also help bring in business or its investing and lending platforms because they do have other products such as Ally Invest, Ally Mortgage, and Ally Car Loan. So Ally Bank isn't necessarily dropping overdraft fees as an act of pure kindness. For the currently unbanked or low and middle income earners, the absence of overdraft fees may be a signal of a bank that's more attuned to their reality. And maybe that won't only win new customers, but see old customers leaning into the bank's related offerings, like mortgages or loans. But of course, that won't be the end of the story for Ally Bank. Taking on more low income customers and offering products like mortgages or car loans also means taking on more risk of customers going through financial difficulty or defaulting. And that is bad for any bank. Not only financially, but because it invites lots of regulatory scrutiny into its lending practices, education initiatives for customers, and whether its employees were given the right training to handle these complex lending dynamics. And maybe especially because Ally Bank is taking this first big step, competitors will be watching closely. In times of rising inequality, any bank would do well to find the balance between market penetration and risk. And only time will tell whether Ally has been boxing clever, but you can be sure that a savvy ESG investor 
is paying very close attention. And that is it for the week. My favorite part about this job is being able to turn a story over to find the vein of ESG running through it. For the oil pipelines running across North America, climate change is amplifying the voices of protest and highlighting how a poor environmental or social track record can put pressure on companies that are used to locking in contracts for 10 or 15 years or more. And for Ally Bank, reading the shifting social pressures might mean a short-term drop in revenue, but with a potential upside of more customers and more opportunities to serve those that need it most. And for investors, these stories are reminders of how ESG can layer on top of traditional analyses or investment strategies to shine a light on opportunities and risks from a totally different angle. A massive thanks to Antonius and Kevin and Carrie for their take on the news with an ESG twist. A special shout out to Chris Cote. He co-authored Kevin and Antonius's paper and he gave me some great ideas behind the scenes. So Chris, if you're listening, do take a bow. And thank you, our dear and great listeners, for tuning in. We love your feedback and questions. Please keep them coming. If you have the chutzpah, don't forget to rate and review us and subscribe to the show. We will be taking a much-needed break next week, but Mike will be coming at you the week after that on the 16th of July. Thanks again, and hope that you are finding some respite from the pandemic or the heat wave or any other omen of the end times. Bye for now. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc. subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research, LLC, a registered investment advisor and the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.